Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cloud Wars Live, where we explore today's digital revolution by speaking with business executives and thought leaders who are changing how the world lives, works, plays, learns, and dreams. Our guest today is Tony Uphoff, CEO of Thomas, formerly a media company, now a data platform company covering the industrial space and helping industrial companies as they move through their own digital transformations. Tony, thanks for being with us. Hey, Bob, good to talk to you again. Thanks very much. And everybody, Tony is part of our monthly digital all-stars team and the segments with Tony, this is the second month we've done this now, is called Up Off on Industry. So we're gonna take a look at some things, this intersection where these industrial manufacturing, uh, heavy goods companies are moving rapidly into the worlds of data, data-driven business, informatics, and so on like that. And Tony just said, as we were, sort of prepping a little for our discussion today, you said you've seen some interesting trends about a, what do you call it, a 12 month pretty strong uptick in demand for some specific types of products and services for, for the industrial world. Yeah, I think it's fascinating, Bob, to watch. Um, on our major platform of ThomasNet, we can see every two seconds, somebody's picking a product or a service or evaluating a product or service. And over the last 12 to 18 months, we've seen a sustained lift around what you and I might think of as categories relating to robotics or automation. So we're clearly starting to see the next lift in this idea of industry 4.0, where we're starting to not only automate factory for floors, but in addition to that, we're seeing a sustained lift in products or services like sensors and data related products. So it's kind of an interesting dynamic in that you know, obviously U.S. manufacturers have become competitive over the last 25 years by adopting advanced technology. Let's consider this on the factory floor, automation and robotics and some of the things, and they're consistently staying competitive in that. I think we're probably, the reason we're seeing an increase there probably has more to do with the health of the American manufacturing economy than in any sort of technological revolution. I think the growth around things like sensors and additive manufacturing and other areas like that really starts to get into this idea of, you know, pardon the buzzy expression, but this industry 4.0, where we're taking, let's call it digital technologies and embedding them or combining them with traditional industrial products and services. And that to us is really interesting. We think we're seeing some fascinating trends there. Yeah, Tony, uh, I, I don't think we talked about this last time, but I wanted to mention, as you described it as additive and, you know, the, uh, the term of industry 4.0, I think it was at the Hanover Fair a few months ago, Microsoft had a pretty big presence, right? One of the preeminent tech companies in the world, I believe the top cloud provider in the world, and a, just a, about a third of the Microsoft booth space was taken up by Microsoft stuff. The vast majority of their space, they devoted toward nine very young or startup companies that are helping to bridge this world of data, technology, and industry. So uh, some of the, the areas that they were moving into were extraordinary. So I think your point about this intelligence everywhere is just unmistakable now in companies. It's, it's, not a, it's almost not an innovation play now. It's, it's where they have to be, right? Well, if you, if you take, you know, the the, the cliche of data is the new oil for every industry under the sun today. And we're all kind of in this, this interesting time where we're realizing um, the data that we produce and or customers produce um, 
has, has some uh, remarkable signals in it if we understand how to read them. So as a, as a you know, simple example, you look at the data that we can now take from industrial products or services by hooking up relatively simple technology, sensor-based technology, combining it with IoT, the internet of things, so that everything's now wired. And now suddenly we can start to analyze what's moving or not moving in inside of a product. And you know, you, it, it's opening up things like digital twinning, where we could actually build a replica in a digital format of an ongoing system and then model the health of that system, which is really absolutely astounding, you know, the, the, the game-changing nature of that. We can model prospective new products or services, use additive manufacturing or 3D, you know, printing as they call it, and do, you know, complex models of things without having to build or invest a tremendous sum of money to start to build really expensive prototypes. So this use of data, I think is really where I'm going, is starting to completely change the way these companies start to look at the world. And it's still new. This is a really new area for a lot of these companies because these companies didn't grow up by analyzing data to make their products. That's not actually the way that, you know, they originally built them. Tony, I, I want to come back to your point about additive manufacturing in a second, but uh, one example that as you were describing that I wanted to mention to you about the sensors and all, um, there was uh, somebody from one of the big technology companies had been working closely with one of the big airlines and they said, there's a mechanic at the, like the main um, maintenance airport, wherever it is in the country here. And they said, this guy had this incredible ear and he could actually buy, you know, when they'd run an engine up to a certain speed, he could tell by the sound of it, okay, two months from now, we're going to have trouble. A month from now, so, you know, whatever it might be. And somebody said, well, what do you hear? And he said, well, I can't explain. And he said, I, I just know it. So, uh, <laughs> you know, this is wonderful that he had this skill, but it was, it was not real helpful to the organization. And I, I, you know, unless you can find, you know, thousands and thousands of these people who all have the same sense of, you know, acute hearing, you're trapped. So this move from uh, sort of spot notions of human intelligence and expertise really building this into the system, getting out in front of problems and more and more optimizing. Is that, is that the play here? Yeah, it's huge, right? So if you look at, um, and this is not new news today, but if you look at the average um, commercial uh, airliner, the manufacturer of the engine is taking more data back in real time than the pilot flying the airplane. And what that allows that manufacturer to do is to exactly what you just described. It could be directing maintenance operations along with the airline. So as that plane's in flight, they're already prepping what's gonna happen when that plane lands at its destination because they can monitor what's happening. So they can make it much more efficient. They can also start to monitor the life cycle of that particular jet engine. They can start to model the next generation of jet engine. Basically, all of that, those data feeds are really remarkable and it's allowing them to do some just really amazing, you know, things through the use of the data. And, and as I said before, this is very, very new. You know, this is, you know, we think of this, if, if you've been in the industry a while, you've been hearing about this for a long time and you think of this as old hat. Imagine as we start to apply this uh, of things that are far less advanced than a jet engine. So I'm talking to you from the heart of New York City. Nearby is Hudson Yards. Uh, technically speaking, I think it's the largest commercial real estate development in US history. 
Well, one of the things that's unique about a brand new development of this size and scale is all of these buildings are being built with state-of-the-art technology and modeling. So at the front end, before the building is ever developed, they're using very advanced, what's called BIM, building information modeling. So they can start to model out the building in ways that are, are really remarkable. And then what that also allows, Bob, in today's world is not only can architect, builder, contractor, but also product and service provider, the HVAC companies, all of the different components that go in, everybody's literally and figuratively on the same page, but now there's a digital ledger for maintenance for five years from now, 10 years from now, you and I are the new owners of that building. We can come in and see what was originally designed, what was originally spec'd. So this is transforming the way that, you know, what would I call it, you know, less um, technically advanced, you know, we think of aerospace should be advanced. So the example of a jet engine spinning off data and the manufacturer ad adapting to that, everybody's heard that, but boy, this is now pulling through in things that are, you know, considered far less advanced, you know, the way you and I might think of them. And again, it's the same model though. It's applying data. Second piece to it, we're starting to see the use of, again, relatively simple sensor-based technology, but we can now start to embed these way down into systems. We can start to um, uh, understand the aging of concrete. We can start to look at, um, if not self-repairing, imagine pipes and plumbing that are deeply embedded into large commercial enterprises that it would be very difficult to go in and analyze that. You're not just popping open some drywall if something goes south on you, <laughs> right? You're, you know, millions of dollars. Well, now we've got technology embedded into these systems so that we can make much more predictive and real time hey, we're on a repair cycle of, of, you know, uh, of X number of months, but we can also start to see wear and tear long before it becomes a, a substantial problem. And, and Tony, so are those sorts of things uh, parallel in some way to the idea that you mentioned before? Because I think lots of folks, you know, we, we've heard the term of additive manufacturing. What does that mean right now here in the middle of 2019? And where do you see that headed? Yeah, boy, I, I, you know, I don't know that I'd be the best judge of where it's headed, but fundamentally additive manufacturing, people are using that as a terminant around 3D printing. And so the idea that you could supplement the way that you manufacture through more automated, uh, literally manufacturing of products and services. So most, I was going to say most every manufacturer, that, that's probably a bit of an overstatement, um, a large number of American manufacturers are starting to adopt uh, additive manufacturing or 3D printing on their factory floor. And in some cases, depending on the complexity of the product, the speed is not super fast. So in some cases, this could take several days to quote unquote print or manufacture something depending on the complexity of the product or the component. Um, in other cases, it can be relatively, you know, quick as a matter of, uh, of hours. And so what it's allowing these manufacturers to do is to take something that was a much more complex pro uh, process, something that required a much more expensive bit of machinery where they can take things that perhaps aren't as of yet mission critical products or components and use additive manufacturing to manufacture them. So Part of it is um, cost efficiency. In some cases, it's speed. But like all technology, that's getting cheaper, faster, better every day. So as the ability for additive manufacturing to take on infinitely more complex products, but also produce them quicker, 
I think we're just at the very beginning of it. I, I, re I really do. I think this is going to be amazing. And I don't see it replacing manufacturing. Quite the contrary. I think it is truly, as the name applies, additive. I think you're seeing this used in additive areas where, you know, perhaps as of yet, the precision machining that you might require a different type of machine for isn't as required. Yeah, Tony, it's wild in a, you know, we, we think about these um, 360 degree loops, right? And on the one hand, a lot of what you're describing, the factory floor, the creation of things moving up, but also as you talked about the, the BIM and the building information modeling, you pull all the different stakeholders and constituents into it and probably including a lot of the leaseholders, the, the tenants, who's gonna be there and where they want things. So there's, now this sort of unification of what used to be the front office or back or the demand chain and supply chain. So if those things can get hooked up like that, the position that you're describing for the role of data and that move from not just the floor, but how does sales and marketing take more advantage of this in the industrial economy? Well, if you think about it, Bob, to your point, you know, the, the, the cliche of transparency, right? We're bringing transparency to a lot of these supply chains and processes, but kind of listening to you phrase the question, that's kind of what you're saying, right? And, and I think what's going to happen as a result of that is, I think the first tranche of this is it just dry, it takes the friction out of collaboration. It takes the friction out of collaboration between buyer and seller. If I'm providing, um, you know, massive uh, commercial valves or HVAC systems and you're the builder of the building, it gets us on the same page in a way that would be very difficult to do through just natural iteration back and forth, passing blueprints or drawings or having meetings. So that's sort of an obvious uh, aspect of it. But to your point is more and more data on the use of the building. And, and the efficiency of the building starts to become transparent to multiple groups of people. I don't even think we know yet where that data could, could add value. Um, you know, to the, certainly to the building owner understanding that, but it could create incremental business models. If I'm the provider of uh, service and support on some of the, the products and services that I sold into the building, having access to that data on an ongoing basis might allow me to drop the, the price of my service components to you and, and, and become more competitive. I, I think the other aspect about it is to your point on the supply chain where we think this is really interesting. If you think of um, a file, a digital file like a, like a BIM file, it is simply a digital ledger, right? So if you think about, about the supply chain, what holds a lot of supply chains back, particularly if I wanted to do a decentralized supply chain, is once I start crossing boundaries, uh, physical boundaries, um, geographic boundaries, uh, currency boundaries, different currencies that are traded language, boy, I start to back up because it's just infinitely more complex. Well, if there's a digital ledger, right? And this is where blockchain technology over time is probably gonna come into this as well. But if we've got a digital ledger where you and I as potential partners or collaborators around a piece of business have a common digital ledger, boy, it, it, it just opens up tons of opportunities. And, and I don't even think we, we know yet where that might go and how people might benefit from the transparency of that type of data and information. Tony, the, uh, when you mentioned that, some of the digital letters and some of the things with blockchain, it's it's it's. I don't know if the right term is scary or depressing or, or it's exciting if you think about solving that problem. When you see some of the statistics about the amount of time, the amount of cost, 
the amount of wasted material and effort and lost uh, goods somewhere in the global supply chain. So really, it, you know, for companies that probably have to operate on a relatively thin margin, if they can capture that some, so it's financially, it's a huge benefit. They get to deliver better product and service. And it just takes a lot of that uncertainty and anxiety out of uh, what's already, you know, a fairly high stakes business. Well, you know, it's interesting too, Bob. I think it also, in a positive way, starts to level playing fields. So I'll give you a couple examples. We were recently doing a survey across um, large scale company procurement professionals. So these would be, you know, procurement, you know, chief procurement officers, high end folks in large companies, Fortune 100, Fortune 1000 companies. And we were going through a kind of a jobs to be done research and analysis. What's a day in the life like? What tools do you use to make your decisions and things like that? And we came across something that initially when, when we heard it seemed kind of benign, but the more we tried to understand it, we realized it was really something there, which is this. These big buyers say, we're frustrated because we don't oftentimes get access to small to medium-sized suppliers because they can't get to us, number one, or they don't want to work with us, number two, because it's too bureaucratic and we put them through too much and the paperwork and the headaches, the payment terms, all these things. Now, here's you know, a senior person that realizes they're going to benefit by a potentially niche supplier somewhere deep down inside their supply chain, but they realize they can't get to them. And I think technology like what you and I are describing would create that kind of common digital ledger that would allow the small player to feel protected that, hey, you know, it's very clear where the products are. It's very clear where it is in the supply chain. It's very clear with the payment terms and the process. So it may open some doors for large and small company to be able to find a way to do business together without the kind of, boy, do I really want to work with the 800 pound gorilla and I'm the small to medium business and you know, maybe I don't want to because it's more of a headache. So that, that's a small example, but it was interesting in these interviews, these um, procurement professionals literally reference blockchain as the enabling technology that would help the smaller company, which I found fascinating. It wasn't something we thought of. It, it was something that came at us. That, that is well too, because that's, uh, you know, for there's been, whether you want to call it hype or the promise or the potential of it seems very real, but there are significant real world challenges that some companies have had in installing that, right? You know, where does one technology vendor's role in that begin and end? And probably some typical, not startup, but early stage technology challenges that are faced there. But as that starts to sink in a little, I think it's fascinating, Tony, what you described, because it's hard to picture it sometimes, but every company was at one point one of those small or mid-sized companies, right? They, right. they weren't born giants. Yeah. So the, yeah. op, the, the capabilities that exist there. So I think the fact that, as you said, there's on the, in the minds of these chief procurement officers, there's not only awareness of blockchain technology, but there's an eagerness for them to open up the opportunities uh, for what they don't know about, what could yeah. be a huge help to them. Well, and, and, and Bob, again, I would emphasize what's, what's really fascinating about this market dynamic. Uh, you know, we're clearly watching a market transition in the industrial arena. And that market transition is really about this idea of you know, digital technology converging with traditional industrial products and services. And while the examples we're using have sexy technology like blockchain and all these kind of cool things, and we talked about digital twinning and additive manufacturing, there are other examples, Bob, that would blow your mind in their 
their elegant simplicity. So one of my favorite ones is, you're very familiar with the company Disney, obviously, a big chunk of their revenues comes from theme parks. So, you know, imagine you're one of the world's leading global theme park operators. So there's a lot of challenges. You have, you have throughput of getting people on and off rides. You have all kinds of logistics. You got food you want to provide and all that kind of stuff. But if you think of, what, of the, the probably one of the more benign challenges that you face, it's dealing with the amount of trash that 100,000 people a day are going to generate. Well, here's a great example of using an industry 4.0 application. Um, a relatively small supplier started to work with them and developed a way that they can use sensor-based technology connected to trash cans and let them know when a trash can needed to be empty. And it's hooked up to the internet. So they're putting basic sensor technology inside you know, receptacles. That's then connected to the internet because before, and you can relate to this, you're walking around Disney and you see all these poor people that are having to constantly go over and check their receptacles to see if they're full of trash. <laughs> and you know, here's a pretty, I don't know what you want to call it, simplistic example but you know, the numbers of cost savings and benefit they got out of what appeared to be a relatively simple idea. And again, that, that was brought to them, I think, by one of the smaller suppliers in, in the marketplace that came up with the idea. Yeah, that, that, that uh, open marketplace, open environments, open innovation, you know, all of those terms comes into that. You know, who would think of all that? I've got to make a better, faster roller coaster, virtual yeah. augmented reality. Well, let's make sure the trash cans are smart and, and we, uh, we take good care of them. Yeah, right. Tony, you know, I, uh, uh, something about a building and a little bit of manufacturing uh, story to share with you, but it's certainly not a, an industrial company, but the National Hockey League. I had a chance last week to talk with their uh, senior VP for innovation and business development, which in itself is an interesting combination of responsibilities. But he was describing uh, two things. One, they've, uh, they developed an uh, iPad app for coaches. And he said they dropped it in the coaches' benches a year ago at the end of the regular season, right before the playoffs started. And he said, now, some of these coaches, he said, these are not the most open to new ideas. So, you know, it's worked all the way this year. We got in the playoffs. You're not putting anything behind the bench. Wasn't there ever. I'm not going to. Well, they love it. You know, it turns out because they can see things they never saw before. Yeah. And one of the things the league's looking into next is if they embed the pucks with a certain number of sensors and have sensors around the ice, around the glass, and then up around the arena, they're going to have an astonishing amount of data that they'll be able to track the player movement, the puck movement, wow. the speed, all of this. And one of the first things that he said was, you know, we're going to talk to certainly the teams will be interested, the players, the coaches. But also we said we think a lot of our gaming partners, as they move up into perhaps legalized sports betting, the applications or the games that could be created out of this. So there must be, um, you know, he and he was talking about, hey, the NHL, we're a small company, we're lean and mean, you know. We serve the teams and the players. And you think about some of these big industrial companies, the astonishing breadth of capabilities they have around the world, the physical infrastructure, the customers, the talent, the people, the data they have. I just think we're on the verge of things in the world that you and your company uh, help understand these things. It's going to be an adventure that uh, I, the, the likes of which I don't think we've ever seen. I, I would agree with you. And it's interesting. So, you, you know, you, you remember the famous, you know, book Moneyball by Michael Lewis that was turned into a movie. As you know, that was lifted from sabermetrics applied to baseball. 
that equally a bit of a reticence. Yeah. Hey, it's my own two eyes and gut instinct. I know a big right-hander when I see one, by gosh, you know, you can't give me stats. And it's started to change the way we think of baseball. I, I love the vignette about the NHL in, in the same way. And I think what you're touching on is twofold. A, we're in the, no, no pun intended, the first inning of these things, certainly. So it's very early days. But I think you're also touching on something else, which is, is fascinating for those of us that are in the midst of it. Um, you're also talking about a cultural change because it, it, is, um, it is a significant shift. And I notice it in our customers and a lot of the companies that we work with, this idea of what does the data show? And I think if, if you grew up in an industry that, you know, you, you, it was experiential in nature, you developed it, you developed what you think of as a gut instinct, but it's actually a pattern recognition through years and years of, of hard work and study. And now the idea that you could accelerate that or bring someone else up to speed far faster than the 25 or 30 years that it took you to understand the industry through the use of data, that's a cultural mind shift. And so we're watching it in the industrial marketplaces. So you can see some examples of industrial companies that have just, you know, what, what's the cliche of leapt the chasm yeah. and boy, they're there and they're, they're, they're going and they're, they're driving it quickly. And then we're seeing that kind of, you know, the, the mainstream start to come online of understanding, you know, what do you mean by data? How might I use this data? And, and then, um, you know, really setting up also systems for analyzing data and acting on data. I know when, uh, when we started to, to really understand the volumes of data, you know, we're at nearly three petabytes of ongoing, you know, buyer behavior data. When we really started to analyze that, even inside of our company, you know, we, we literally have posters uh, on the wall and we mention this all the time of our data shows, uh, you know, we're not in the opinion business, we're in the data business. So we turn first to the data and can we draw some conclusions on what best to do based on the data and, and that's a change and, and, and not to get o overly uh, long-winded about it, but I think what you're also identifying is technological change precedes cultural change. We've now unleashed all of these fantastic tools and boy, it's, it, to me, it's extraordinary to watch the industrial markets and manufacturing markets adapt to this because they've already got the robotic stuff and the factory automation. Boy, they nailed that. Now, this is kind of a whole, whole new area of, of, um, of study, if you will, this idea of, of data and analytics. Yeah, and, and again, you know, I think the, uh, the excitement, the adventure, the opportunity that some of these companies are going through right now is while the, your point about technology change preceding cultural change, and then the language in some ways has to either play catch up or get out in yeah. front of it. So, Tony, you're, you're a longtime student of this sort of thing. You talked a few minutes ago about that intersection of information technology and industrial technology. Where do you think that's headed? What's that going to be called? What, how would you advise people to try to think about how to get the best handle on that as they try to manage the intersection of these two forces? It's a great question. And I think, you know, I, I can't remember if it was Forrester or one of the, you know, the big uh, research companies coined this phrase of industry 4.0 to describe some of these types of dynamics in the industry that, that uh, we at Thomas are focused on. Um, I, I think over time, at the end of the day, we'll just simply refer to this as technology. I mean, that's what it is. It is technology. And whether we're you know, uh, uh, we're excited about it in the industrial markets because we're taking advanced technologies and applying them 
to things that you would think of as traditional electronic products, I mean, pardon me, industrial products or services. Well, that's what technology has always done. If you think about it, you know, I mean, you know, applying technology to, from its earliest uses, you know, that's kind of what we've done. We just think of it as somewhat new because it's starting to apply digital technology, not manufacturing technology, but digital technology to these products and services. So I think two things. I think one is, and you nailed this earlier on, I, I think we're, we're early days of this. I think so people can wrap their heads around it. I think this is simply the digital transformation taking its way in the industrial marketplaces. And I don't think of digital transformation as a disruptor as much as it perhaps it was at the beginning. I think it's much more of an enabler today. I, I will say this, I think like other markets, if you think of where this is gonna go, what ends up happening, and you and I talked a little bit about this from the digital disruption or transformation of industrial sales and marketing, in this particular area too, if we're starting to use data to define our product strategy and to do a better job of creating new products and services, the companies that are adopting that are moving faster away from the companies that aren't. And I think that's the, the good news and the bad news about these things, right? The good news is you and I aren't describing technology that's, that's massively expensive, that's, that's not ubiquitously available today, you need the people, you need the systems to be able to harness it. But here's the downside risk, is it's not a, a simple methodology that if you have the technology and I don't, you're just a little bit ahead of me. You're now moving faster away from me based on the use of that technology than I have the capability of going. And I think that's where, um, you know, your question was, where, where is it going to go? I think you're gonna see some, um, some, some uh, a bigger gap between the have and the have nots in that regard. I think there's a corollary thing that's starting to happen in the industrial markets. We're seeing a tremendous amount of new capital come into American manufacturing from private equity. And I think private equity sees all of the dynamics you and I are describing and they realize if they're able to come in and assist those companies that haven't yet made this digital transformation in the areas you and I are describing, I think they realize that they can make these companies much more competitive by bringing them together and, and providing the capital to invest in those types of, uh, of services and, and uh, you know, capabilities. Yeah, Tony, exciting times. And uh, your, your final comment there made me think of the great Peter Drucker's line. I think he said, you apply technology to an existing process, you get productivity. You apply technology to an unknown or a first time process, you get innovation. And it sounds like the breakaway companies are really locked down on the first and they're really starting to get the second one. Yeah. And I think it's that, that interplay. But uh, what I always say, like, you know, in the cloud wars, these sorts of things, uh, the big winners are the customers, right? I mean, the, the fruits of all this work, this innovation, the breakthrough stuff, I mean, to be able to sit back and have more and more choices about where you get, how you get it, why you want it, how much data is behind it. Are you really sure about this? Have you really vetted this out versus... Uh, you know, my gut tells me I think it'll work. So what, yeah. what an interesting, interesting future we're stepping into. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Tony, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, up off on industry. This has been great. Any final word, any final thought for the audience? 
Hey, uh, my thanks, Bob. It's always a, a blast to get a chance to catch up and, and share some thoughts and ideas. And, and in future uh, conversations, one of the things that might be interesting for us to talk about is the alternative data market uh, is, is accelerating. And I, I mention it in context because um, you and I are primarily centering this conversation around the use of digital technology and analytics and, and, and um, primary data to make businesses innovative, whether it's for new products or services or new ways of running the business and different things like that. One of the things that as we participate in the alternative data marketplace, we're finding that data that heretofore was not something that was considered to be perhaps it was just simply digital exhaust is now actually incredibly value, valuable in providing insights into industries that can get access to that data. So it might be interesting for us to look at that on future um, Cloud Wars conversations, because I think there's some fascinating trends that are coming together in that area. And we're, we're learning as we go, but we're starting to participate in those areas and see some really fascinating uh, uses of alternative data. Tanya, did you just do a tease to get people to come back next time? You know, I, I'm shameless for this, Bob. Anything I can do to, to pump up, <laughs> Right? <laughs> no, thanks. Tony, that sounds fascinating. It's going to be fun. Thanks a million for this today. And thanks to all of you for being a part of the Cloud Wars live audience here with Tony Uphoff of Thomas for Uphoff on Industry. We hope we'll see you next time. Thanks for being here.